to Isaiah chapter 53. We'll be continuing our series in Isaiah 53. This is the fourth of five uh, sermons that we're planning to do on this. Um, I have enjoyed worshiping with your church, and I have enjoyed fellowshipping with you afterwards. But I will not be staying after the service today, because uh, our church is celebrating the, um, I think, 35 years of ministry that Pastor Merrick gave to us, and he has just retired. And so I want to get back to Grace Emanuel so that I can celebrate with uh, the Merricks and with the church as a whole. So I'll be heading out very quickly after the service is done. Uh, I'm going to read again from Isaiah 52 and verse 13, since that's actually the beginning of this passage. It's an example of chapter breaks not ending up in the right place. Um, Given that they were not inspired of God, though, that shouldn't trouble us. And then I'm going to read through our text, which is verses 7 through 9 in chapter 53. So Isaiah 52, verse 13 and following. Listen now, for these are the words of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence 
and there was no deceit in his mouth. Well, let's pray and ask for God's help as we seek to open up this scripture. Our Father in heaven, it it is amazing for us to read these words that were written several centuries before Jesus came and to read such a clear depiction of who he would be and what he would do. But Father, as we read these things, we desire not just to learn about history, we desire not just to come away with a, a greater understanding, although we do pray that you'd help us to understand this message, and we do pray that you would cause me to be faithful to bring forth only that which is in the word, to preach your word and not my own. But Father, we, we desire more than understanding. Lord, we know that it's possible for our heads to be filled with knowledge, but our hearts to be cold. Lord, we want our lives to be set on fire with a flame of love for you and for other people. We want to become more like Jesus. And therefore, we pray that that these words would be like tools that your Holy Spirit would take up, so to speak, and he would apply them to our hearts and to our souls, that he would be cutting away and shaving off all that which is not like Jesus, and that he would be forming us and shaping us to be like your Son. So please, Lord, have mercy upon us. And Father, even as we look at your Son in this passage of Scripture, we ask that if there is anyone who hears this message, who is not yet joined to your Son by a living faith and a true repentance, oh God, would this be the day of salvation. Make this the day of a new birth for that lost sinner and bring him or her to yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the last sermon we saw from verses 5 and 6 of this text, a very, very clear, one of the clearest descriptions in the entire Bible, including the New Testament, of the fact that Christ died for our sins. That, as it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. Or or verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I remember last uh, Lord's Day when I went home, um, I was just, I was still thinking about this. And what an extraordinary display of the love of God this is. I mean, it's such a familiar truth, right? For those of us who have been in an evangelical or a Reformed church, we've heard this probably a thousand times. Christ died for our sins. But I was just thinking about this. I mean, what kind of love is this? What kind of a person, in order to rescue his enemies who hate him, punishes and sacrifices his own perfect beloved son so that he can love his enemies forever. What is that? I mean, it's, it's an amazing love. It's an extraordinary, supernatural love, a love that should evoke the deepest worship of our hearts, 
This passage of Scripture opens up to us the love of the Father in sending His Son in in an amazing way. In fact, if, if we could read on in Isaiah chapter 54, we would hear God speaking to His people like a husband who is speaking to a wife who is unfaithful to Him. And as a result, the relationship was broken. But he speaks to her and he he says to her that though he was angry with her because of her sins, he is now going to love her forever. And he, he says to her, he says to us, his people, that this is going to be like when he swore an oath and made a covenant with Noah that the flood would never come upon the earth again. And in the same way, God says to his people, I will never be angry with you again, but I am going to love you and show you kindness forever and ever and ever. And it's not an accident that Isaiah 54 comes right after Isaiah 53. It is because the Father in his love sent his Son to take our place, to die and suffer the wrath and punishment that we deserved, that the floodgates of love have been opened. It was love that provided the sacrifice, and it is love that now flows forth through Christ, the one who is crucified, upon everyone who belongs to him. Furthermore, not only does Christ show us the amazing, extraordinary, supernatural love that God has for us, but he also shows us the extraordinary love that we should show to God and to each other. In other words, Christ saves us by offering up to God the very obedience that we owed to God. And so in saving us, he both presents himself to us as the object of our trust so that we trust in him and him alone to make us right with God but he also presents himself to us as an example of how we are to love God and to serve one another. And that is the burden of the text that we're going to be looking at tonight in verses 7 through 9. Because this text tells us that Christ not only suffered, but he suffered as an act of an obedience and love. He meekly endured unjust suffering because he loved his Father so much and he loves us so much. So let's take a look at this text and see Jesus in it with the hope and desire that the Holy Spirit will draw out our hearts to to echo back to God this same kind of love, to become like Jesus in every way. First of all, in verse 7, we see the servant's quiet submission to oppression. The servant's quiet submission to oppression. Look at the text again in your Bibles. It says, he was oppressed. He was oppressed. And, And to be oppressed means to be treated Harshly, unjustly, 
wrongly by someone who has power to get away with it. And so as a result, someone has has power, has the ability to do what he wants, and there is somebody else who is under that power, and the oppressor oppresses the oppressed. And oppression is something that is strongly condemned in the Bible. It's, it's rebuked in the prophecy of Isaiah in various places. Christ suffered oppression. And yet there's something different going on here. Because when ordinarily when people are oppressed, they're victims, right? The reason they're oppressed is because they don't have the power to stop it. That's part of what makes oppression such a tragedy. But this is not the case with the person that we're dealing with here. When it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, that word he was afflicted could, and and several commentators say that it, it may actually be the best translation, say he humbled himself. In other words, he didn't merely die as a victim. He humbled himself and received the oppression. He chose to receive the injustice. And that is the picture that is further developed in this verse. When he is compared to a sheep and a lamb, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. And notice how this verse says the same thing twice, before that and after that. It says, he opened not his mouth, and again at the end of the verse, he opened not his mouth. Jesus could have stopped it. Jesus could have put an end to the oppression. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. You remember what he said when people were mistreating him? He said, don't you understand? All I have to do is say the word, and there will be armies of angels that will appear in the sky. In fact, I was just reading, this was so striking in in the Gospel of John. I think it was in chapter 18. And they come to get Jesus, and he's not hiding They come to arrest Jesus, and he just walks right out and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Although, actually, if you look at the Greek, what he says is, I am. And you know what they do? They fall over. They step back and fall on the ground. How do you explain that? Well, perhaps you know, in the Bible, I am is the name of God. Exodus 3.14, that's what God says. This is what my name, the Lord, means. It means I am. Jesus walks out to face the people who are going to oppress him, and they say, we're here to get you. He's not running. He's not hiding. He just says, I am, and they are helpless. And he has to say to them again, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then finally they arrest him. He could have stopped it in an instant. He's God. He's the one that that Isaiah described in chapter 9 as the mighty God. If he had just spoken a word, they would have been ashes. 
but he humbled himself. He opened not his mouth. He's like a lamb. He is being taken to the altar to be sacrificed. And this is why he's come. He's like a sheep before its shears. He's allowing them. He's letting them mistreat him. He's allowing them to humiliate him, to spit upon him, to slap him, to beat him, to flog him, and he doesn't open his mouth. It's astonishing how when you read the gospel records, there, there are times when people are bringing all these accusations against Jesus, and they're all lies. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine being, being brought to trial and people are saying all these horrible things about you and they're not true? And Jesus is quiet. He's quiet. He doesn't even bother to try and defend himself. And I think we probably would have been like a caged lion at that point in time. We would have been roaring and threatening. We would have been shouting terrible things and making counter accusations and trying to defend ourselves. But Jesus is quiet. And why was he quiet? See, folks, we, we need to get past the mere quietness of the mouth here. Because in point of fact, there were times that Jesus wasn't quiet. He cried out to his father in prayer in the midst of his sufferings. He Sometimes he actually rebuked people for following unjust proceedings. He said to the people who were trying him, you, you don't even care about the truth. He did confess who he was. I told you, but you wouldn't listen. No, the quietness here in this verse is not just about the quietness of the mouth, my friends. The quietness of the mouth is a pointer to the quietness of the heart. See, there's something going on in Jesus as he goes to suffer and die that gives him not a weakness, but a power to endure it. And what is that? He is absolutely determined to do his Father's will. He is completely and utterly fixed and resolved upon one thing, and that is obedience. He loves God so much that all these things that are happening to him, all these horrible, evil things, all these unjust things where people are not treating him the way that they ought to, all these things are not able to distract him from his single-minded goal. And his goal is to do his Father's will, to accomplish his Father's purpose. And thank God for that, because if it weren't for that, he never would have saved us. But you know, friends, even as we look at him being described here in this verse as a lamb and a sheep, and we can see the, the clear references to him being a sacrifice for our sins, just as they sacrificed lambs, in this context, there's also a connection that goes beyond sacrifice, because did you, did you notice that we are compared to sheep in verse 6? But we're not like Jesus. 
Verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We were wandering sheep. We were rebellious sheep. We were sheep who didn't want to be under God as our shepherd. We didn't want to follow him. We were determined that we were going to do our will. We were going to live our way. But here Jesus comes along and he shows us what it means to be a true sheep in the flock of God. He sets an example for us, my friends. He shows us what it means to be a true son, a true daughter of the king. And what he shows us is that it means quiet submission to the will of God. It means laser focus upon doing what God has called us to do. It means that no matter what happens to us, we will be determined to love God and to love people no matter what. Alexander McLaren says, the main point for us to lay to heart is not merely the fact of that silent submission, but the motive which led to it. He opened not his mouth because he willingly embraced the cross. And he willingly embraced the cross, McLaren says, because he loved the Father and would do his will. And because he loved the world and would be its Savior. This is what we are called to do. We are called to be people who are determined not to seek our own rights no matter what. That's the way the world works. The world says, doesn't matter what it takes, I'm going to get what I deserve. I am going to insist upon receiving what is my right. And Jesus comes, and he was oppressed. He was oppressed. He was really oppressed, unjustly treated. But he didn't insist on his own rights. He didn't demand what should have been coming to him. He didn't use his voice and his power to assert himself and to make sure people will finally treat him the way they're supposed to. No, because love demanded something different. And that's the way we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be the kind of people who the first question we are asking is not, how do I make sure I get the justice that's coming to me and the things that I deserve? The first question we're asking is, what does it mean in this situation to love God And what does it mean to love people? And my friends, including the people who are mistreating us. To be lambs. To be lambs. That's the first thing that we see in this text. The second thing that we see in this text, in verse 8 is the servant suffering man's injustice and God's justice. 
the servant suffering man's injustice and God's justice. And this text requires us to be able to see the same event, but with two different levels of what's going on. Do you remember Joseph? We've been, we've been reading about Joseph, hearing what's happening with Joseph in the scripture readings. And one of the great themes of what's happening with Joseph is that there are two levels of what's causing things to happen. On the one level, on the human level, Joseph was oppressed, wasn't he? I mean, Joseph was seized by his brothers. They were going to kill him. Instead, they sell him into slavery, so at least they make some money off of him. That's brotherly love, right? And when he finally starts to make a pretty good life for himself as a slave, he's falsely accused of sexual assault, and he's thrown into prison. Horrible, horrible injustice. But up here on the divine level, everything is happening according to plan. God has a purpose for everything that's happening to Joseph, so that when you get to chapter 50... Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but, and you know this, God meant it for good. And so in this verse, in verse 8, we have two different levels of what's happening here. On the human level, it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now that word oppression, it's not the same word, translated oppression in verse 7, and it has the idea of force, coercion. He wasn't invited, he was seized, he was arrested and taken away. And that word judgment, it has to do with the work of a judge. It has to do with justice. So the picture in this verse is of a legal and judicial action. Isaiah is revealing here that the servant to the Lord would not just be oppressed by, you know, some angry mob of people who who didn't like him, and so they they seized him and killed him. The servant was going to die at the hands of the civil government. And that, that makes it all the worse, doesn't it? Because the civil government is charged by God, according to Romans 13, to enforce justice. The civil government is called by God to stop oppression. But the servant of the Lord is going to be oppressed and taken away and killed by what McLaren calls judicial murder. Judicial murder. And and, and we know how that worked out in history. It was a travesty of justice. The Lord Jesus Christ was, was taken to the Jewish Sanhedrin and all these false witnesses came against him to tell all these terrible lies about things he never said or never did, or to twist what he said into something bad that he never meant. But even then, the Jewish Sanhedrin couldn't find witnesses that would even agree with each other. The whole thing was a disaster from a judicial perspective, but they didn't care. As soon as they got an admission from Jesus that he was indeed the Son of Man, the Christ, they condemned him to death. They just wanted to kill him. It's what we call a kangaroo court. It's a farce. 
It, it's a show of justice when the people in power have already decided that that man can't live anymore. And then they take him to Pilate, right? <coughs> they take him to Pilate. And what happens there? Pilate examines him. Now, Pilate is not a good man. Pilate was a very wicked man. He was the Roman governor. But even Pilate has to say, I don't find anything in this man that would be the cause of killing him. He actually says this. He openly admits that there is no just cause to have Jesus executed. But because the Jews and their leaders are so insistent, he just caves into them. And so he sends an innocent, righteous man away to die. My friends, there are times when righteous people are oppressed and even their own government becomes an instrument of their unjust imprisonment and even their death. And this should not surprise us because we are following one who suffered this himself. But notice that there is another level of what's going on here. There is another side to this story. There is a higher truth about what's going on because even as Jesus is being unjustly condemned... There is divine justice that's being executed here. Look at the end of verse 8. It says, He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did indeed suffer for sins. He was indeed punished for criminal acts. But not for his, for ours. This is the same truth that we found back in verse 6 when it says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Christ is, is going through this. He's enduring all this mistreatment from people because he understands that he has a mission to fulfill. And because he loves God so much, and because he loves us so much, he is willing to endure this horrific mockery of a trial, this brutal mistreatment, this horrendous pain that's being inflicted on his body, because he has a mission, and because he must suffer and die if he is going to do what his father has called him to do and to do what we need him to do. Indeed, this is the wonder of it, to even redeem some of the very people who are treating him this way. My friends, we don't have the mission of redeeming sinners. We don't have the mission from God of paying the price for sin, but we do have a mission, don't we? We do have a mission. It's, it's even here in the book of Isaiah. I think Isaiah 43, 10. He says, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. And as, as we 
are faced by the fact that if, if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully, we're going to suffer for it. Maybe we're going to suffer because family members will reject us. Maybe we're going to suffer for it because we're going to be the weirdo at work or at school. And maybe, maybe we will suffer for it because our own government will come against us. And they'll make it all look like we are the criminals. But what we have to say to ourselves as we follow Jesus Christ is that there's, even though that's happening on this level, there's a higher level. God's at work here. What they mean for evil, God means for good, that many people will be saved. And we have a mission to fulfill. And in order to fulfill it, we must be willing to embrace suffering in the path of obedience. Now, my friends, don't misunderstand me. There is a time to call out for justice. There is a time to seek some kind of protection. They're, those are they're appropriate things, and you can read in the book of Acts about how when, when the apostles were persecuted, they responded to it in different ways. Sometimes they fled to another city. Sometimes they invoked proper legal authority and said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't treat me this way. Okay, so I'm, I'm not trying to say that God is calling us in every situation never to call for justice or anything like that. But there are times when we have to choose. We have to choose between fighting for our own rights versus persevering in our mission. We have to be willing to ask ourselves, in this situation... What is going to be most effective so that I can witness to people? What is going to be most effective so that I can reach the very people who are mistreating me, who are hating me, who are lying about me, whatever it might be, how am I going to reach them? Because that's our mission. That's what we're called to do. Are we going to love people enough to be willing to suffer to help them to see Jesus? Someone might say, but, but if we don't stand up for our own rights, the church will be powerless. We'll just get bulldozed. The people will just run us over. We'll, we'll be weak. We'll be easy targets. But we don't understand the power of God. Because remember, as we read in, in chapter 53, verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is God's power. And God's power came through Christ. Listen, Christ conquered through his suffering. Christ overcame through his suffering. Don't you remember? When, when they were crucifying Jesus, what was he doing? Was he yelling at them? Was he screaming at them? Was he saying, you're going to burn in hell for treating me this way. Don't you know I'm the son of God? No. What was he doing? He was saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And you say, well, that's weak. People are just going to take advantage of him. But you know what happened? 
there were two men crucified on either side of Jesus. And when this was all starting and everybody was making fun of Jesus, they were making fun of him too. They were screaming at him, mocking him, railing at him. But at some point, one of those men stopped that. And the most amazing thing happened as he watched the way Jesus treated other people, as he watched the way this man suffered and yet still loved. At some point, the Holy Spirit got a hold of that thief upon the cross and he believed in Jesus. He became a Christian such that Jesus was able to say to him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Don't you see? Jesus was conquering on the cross. Jesus was conquering through suffering. So much so that that after he died, one of the Roman soldiers that was there, and make no mistake, those were hardened men. They were killers. One of the Roman soldiers who was there said, Surely this is the Son of God of God. And perhaps he too was converted. See, the way that God works is not the way we expect him to work. We think that the power of God comes through us, through us fighting and being strong and, okay, we're going to slaughter people with our arguments and show how stupid and foolish they are, and we're going to exercise our political power and win the day and carry the world, and, and all of this And, and you know, if if we could have laws that were righteous laws, wouldn't that be a good thing? I'm not preaching against that. But dear friends, when things happen in God's providence in our lives, when we realize that the path of faithfulness is the path that's going to lead us through a very dark valley. And when we see that if we keep walking down that path and we keep loving God and keeping his commandments and loving other people... We're going to suffer for it, and it won't be fair. We need to remind ourselves that our God is the God who conquers through the cross. And it may very well be that those people who have mocked you, who have scorned you, who have cast aside every attempt that you have ever made to share the gospel with them, as they watch you suffer, and they watch you love, and love, and keep on loving, God will break their hearts, and the walls will fall down. This is how God conquers. He conquers through the cross. And this is how we follow Jesus, who opened not his mouth, but instead was stricken for the transgression of his people. And that brings us to the third verse that we're looking at tonight. Verse 9, which speaks to us of the servant's burial and righteousness. The servant's burial and righteousness. It says, they made his grave with the wicked. They made his grave with the wicked. You know, it, it appears from this verse that the intention of those who oppressed him was not to end simply with Jesus dying. In other words, they weren't satisfied just to kill him. 
The enemies of the servant of the Lord would not be satisfied just to make him suffer an agonizing, humiliating death. No, they wanted him to be humiliated even after he died. From what I understand, it was common when people were crucified for their bodies to be thrown together in a common grave. In other words, they wouldn't even be given a decent burial. They would be treated like so much rubbish. After all, they're criminals. They're traitors against the empire. They're they're thieves. They're robbers. Take their bodies away. And this was probably what would have happened to Jesus, except it wasn't God's will. Notice what it says in verse 9 after that. It says that they made his grave with the wicked, but with a rich man he was in his death. Now, the, the Bible tells us in um, 1 Peter 1.12, I think it is, that the prophets themselves would study their own prophecies and try and figure out what is the people of unclean lips. Is there anyone amongst us that can say, I've never sinned, I've never said anything wrong, I've never lied, I've never spoken a harsh word in sinful anger? Of course not, we can't say that. We have often done those things. Jesus never did. He never did. His mouth was pure because his heart was pure. He was nothing but truth. He even said, I am the truth. And dear ones, this is why he was the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. This is why the Father was able to take what Jesus had done and on the basis of that to say to every single sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ, you are counted righteous in my sight. You are justified. Because what Jesus did with absolute perfection is transferred to you. But my friends, Jesus did this not just to justify us. He did it also to set us an example to follow him. So that as we ourselves suffer, as we ourselves are mistreated as we ourselves, even as we try to speak the truth and to show people kindness, are for that very reason sometimes accused of being hateful and of being liars. Peter draws this out very clearly in 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 23. Peter says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, you do, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. You hear him echoing Isaiah 53? When he was reviled, which means to be insulted, to be mocked, to be put down, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We are called to suffer. Did you hear that? That's what Peter said. If you are a Christian, you are called to endure unjust suffering and to respond righteously. You know, I I wonder sometimes, this thing about he was reviled but did not revile in return, I wonder what that would look like on Facebook. I wonder what that would look like in terms of things that we post online. Remember, the context for this is unjust oppression from the government. Dear ones, have we given thought to the fact that the very leaders that we disagree with sometimes, indeed, the very leaders who are violating Holy Scripture and are sinning against God, and are leading our nation away from what is right and what is true, part of our mission is to reach them with the gospel. We prayed for some of them tonight. But how likely is it that we're going to be able to reach our president, or our governor, or whoever it is, with the gospel, if we speak about those people in a way that is reviling. Oh, dear friends, is this the way of the Lamb? Now, am I saying that we cannot stand against injustice? No. Am I saying that we cannot speak out against wrong? Absolutely not. We should speak out against wrong. Otherwise, how will these people know that they need to repent, right? if we don't bring them the truth, but we must bring them the truth in love. And and we can take this down further. It doesn't have to be this, this high government leader. It could just be that guy at your office who mocks you and makes your life miserable sometimes. You're called to represent God to him. How are you doing? You say, oh, It is so hard. I understand. I find myself failing this area regularly. But you know what, my friends? Jesus succeeded. Jesus is with you. If you are a Christian, then you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that you have called me to love this person, but this person is just constantly, it's like he's trying to push my buttons. He is treating me in such a horrible manner, or he's treating someone that I care about in such a horrible manner. How can I possibly love him or her? And we can take that to Jesus. And Jesus understands, because he's been there. But dear friends, Jesus lives inside of his people, and he can give you the power to love people like you have never loved them before. He can give you the, and he can do it because he did it himself. 
You see, what Jesus did while he was suffering, he was working out for our sake. It's like he's he's forged this, this new kind of human race, a human race that is totally and absolutely committed to obeying God, doing his will no matter what the cost is. And he takes this new humanity, this new kind of man or new kind of woman that he has forged in his own experience and he can share it with you. The Holy Spirit can bring, if I may say so rightly, a little bit of Jesus down into your heart so that you can love that person and witness to that person even while they treat you wrongly. I recently came across the story um, that Corey Ten Boom told about how she, years after she was in the, um, the Nazi German death camps, she ran into one of the guards from those camps again. She recognized him, but here's the thing. She had been speaking at this gathering of Christians, and this man started to come up to her. And as he walks up to her, she looks at him and instantly makes the connection, and all the memories come back. Her sister died in that camp. And this man was one of the most cruel guards amongst the Nazis. And as she sees him, and he's walking up to her, and as all these things are coming back to her, he reaches out his hand and he says, I've become a Christian. And God had set her up. Sometimes God kind of traps us in these situations to force us to deal with them because guess what she had just been speaking to people about? Forgiveness. And this former Nazi said to her, isn't it wonderful that we can be forgiven? And she just stood there. And and it was like she was frozen. And he had his hand reached out to shake her hand, but she felt like her hand was made of lead. And she, she just was, it felt like an eternity. It was probably only a second or two. But she's crying out to the Lord. She said, Lord, I know that you have forgiven me. And I know that you call me to forgive this man. But I don't know how. I don't have the power to do so. Please help me. And she lifted up her hand. And she took his hand. And all of a sudden, it was like electricity ran through her. And love filled her heart. And she forgave him. And she loved him as a brother in Christ. Now, I tell you, my friends, that's not natural. That doesn't happen by human willpower. That happens when the Holy Spirit comes and works in someone's life. 
And maybe as I'm preaching about this, maybe there's somebody in particular who's coming to your mind. Someone who has mistreated you. Perhaps someone who has mistreated you in a severe fashion. Someone who has been cruel and, can we even say, demonic in the way that he treated you. And maybe the nature of the relationship is that you find that you are forced to forgive that person again and again and again. It's not the kind of thing that you can just say, well, I'm done with it, I can move on, because the memories are still there. I'm not trying to say this is easy, friends. But what I am saying is, you can go back to Jesus again and again and again, and you will find the Holy Spirit is ready to bring you another piece of his love and to give you the strength to keep loving that person and witnessing to that person for the glory of your heavenly Father. May God give us all the power to do so more and more and more. Because, my friends, God conquers through the cross. Let's pray. Lord, even as we think about these things, it it reminds us of how much we are not like Jesus. And so we we just thank you, first of all, that this is not some law that you have given to us whereby we earn our salvation by becoming like Jesus, that he bore our sins. He even bore our bitterness. He carried the weight of our unforgiveness. He, He carried the weight of our hatred towards other people. And he paid the price for that too. But Father, we deeply desire to become more like Jesus. And therefore, we pray that you would do a remarkable work in our hearts, that we would really start loving the people who have wronged us and do wrong us. And Lord, if in the future it should come to pass that we are persecuted by people who are more powerful than we are, or by by corporations or companies or government or whatever it might be, Give your church the power, we pray, that even while we stand for what is true and what is right, that we will also love the very people who are doing wrong and will love them like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.